0: Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa von Tobel, and this week you get to meet Max Rhodes, co-founder and CEO of FAIR, the online marketplace where retailers discover their next best sellers from independent brands across the globe. A former small business owner, Max is passionate about the positive impact of local commerce on society, and he has made it his mission to help independent retailers and brands build thriving businesses and grow stronger communities. Today, FAIR is valued at over $12 billion. The company supports half a million retailers in 15,000 cities and connects them to over 70,000 brands around the world. Prior to FAIR, Max was an early product lead at Square where he worked on the Cash App and was the founding member of Square Capital, a product that helped more than 230,000 merchants across capital grow their businesses. He holds a BA in history from Yale. And with that, let's welcome Max. Hi, Max. Max, first of all, I followed you from afar. I'm so happy to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's go back just to keep it simple. What's FAIR in your own words?
1: Fair is a wholesale marketplace. Uh, You can think of it as an online trade show or a wholesale version of Amazon. We have retailers, independent retailers on one side and independent brands on the other side. And our job is to help connect them and and make it easier for them to find each other.
0: Where did the inspiration come from? What made you be like, huh, I can go build this amazing marketplace?
1: While I was at Square, I was on the side with a, a buddy I introduced this product called the Blunt Umbrella to the U.S. market. It's this high-end umbrella from New Zealand. And we spent about a decade doing it together. And, you know, we had our own Shopify store. We sold direct-to-consumer. And then we sold into, like, Nordstrom and REI and some big stores. But one of our most successful channels was always the independent retailer. And the way that we found independent retailers to carry and sell our umbrellas was through trade shows and sales reps. And the whole time that I was working on Blunt, the number one problem we were trying to solve was how do we get more of these independent stores? There's hundreds of thousands of them out there and they're incredible in so many ways. They are ambassadors for your brand in a way that a website or you know a big box retailer isn't really, they, they can really tell the story of you know why a customer should buy your product and why they should care about it. And the big problem is that they were just super hard to find and hard to get into. And trade shows are a ton of work. They're really expensive. Sales reps, it's really hard to get them to agree to take on your products. And when they do, you know, a lot of times they're selling other products alongside and it's hard to be first in the bag. And the whole time that I was at Square, I was building products during the week for small businesses. And then on the weekends, I was actually a small business owner myself struggling with this problem that it really felt like technology should be able to solve, but the technology had not yet figured out how to solve. And so when I left Square, I had a few different ideas that I was exploring, but this one kept coming back. It was one of those ideas that was in the shower. It was every couple of days, it was like, man, there should really be a better way to do this. And then finally I decided to just, to really go all in on it and, and try to figure
0: it out. So let's go for rare. Uh, you decided to go all in to figure it out. You know, on one side, you have more than 500,000 retailers buying on Fair, and over 70,000, I'm sure that number's outdated and it's even bigger, selling. How did you begin to get that balance right? For everybody out there who's thinking about building marketplaces or in building a marketplace, how do you hack that?
1: The way that we approached it is we started with one side. We really started with a focus on the retailer. And I think the reason that we started with the focus on the retailers, I knew from the perspective of a brand how big of a problem this was. And we had actually launched blunt on a bunch of wholesale marketplaces that had come and gone and failed. And the core problem I always identified with those marketplaces is you never got traction on the retailer side. And so we started with a laser focus on How do we solve the retailer problem? How do we really make sure that the the demand side of the marketplace has a compelling reason to come and to buy? One of the things that makes that really challenging is selection, ultimately, is a a major, major uh, factor in creating compelling value for the demand side. There is a balancing act there where you do need to get a certain amount of selection in order to figure out. Is there actually compelling enough value on on the retailer side? But we always assumed that we could get enough brands to sign up if we figured out the retailer side and actually had a value prop there and getting them buying, like eventually it would sort of work itself out. So we started talking to retailers just all the time before we even launched the company. I had... 20, 30 retailers from my Blunt days, customers of Blunt that I did interviews with, really tried to understand from a first principles perspective, what is it that they liked about trade shows? What is it that they liked about sales reps? Why hadn't they moved on to buying from one of these marketplaces? I think the core insight that really led to the launch of Fair was that the fundamental problem is that trade shows and sales reps exist to solve the matching problem and to mitigate inventory risk. Like you go to a trade show and they've curated you know, the selection and you walk into a showroom and they've curated the selection such that you know the products that are there are proven, are going to sell. You're buying from a rep who you have a longstanding relationship with, who gets you, who knows you and can tell you that's gonna work for you, that's not. And in order to move the market online, you really had to overcome that fundamental problem of retailers, they're buying products that need to sell a store. It's not just they need to like the products, they need those products to then sell. And if they make a bunch of bad buying decisions, they can go out of business. And so trusting a, a random website where you can't see it, you can't touch it, you've got no track record is a really scary thing. And the big unlock for us was offering net 60 payment terms and free returns, so basically try before you buy. And that's what really got it off the ground and got retailers comfortable buying. And there was a nine month period where we had those value props and it wasn't totally working and it was kind of terrifying, but as we built up more and more supply, it started to really work and it started to take off. And then eventually we got to the point where, okay, we've got enough supply, the value props are working, Retailers are starting to transact. Let's open up the marketplace. And it exploded. And basically, it, we've kind of been off to the races ever since.
0: Can you define, just because it'd be so interesting to like hear when you felt like you were ready to open up the marketplace, what was happening that you were like, okay, we're ready? Describe what that looks like.
1: There was a really specific moment. I don't know if this is true for everybody. I'd be curious to hear from you, given how many founders you've talked to. But there was a really specific moment where you could feel it. And I was in New York at the New York Now trade show. We had a booth and we were really there to try to show the product to a bunch of retailers all at once with kind of a customer research lens in mind. Up to that point, it didn't really feel like we had it. Like it was it it, it was tough, like we were throwing discounts at them. They didn't totally get it. The next day we decided to experiment with, instead of talking about net 60 payment terms, and free returns basically buy now pay later and free returns we reframed it as try before you buy and there was something about that that hooked people and they came in and they had kind of a different mindset when they were doing the the buying and it was just like people were spending hours and hours and hours on the site and it it just felt completely different i remember calling one of my co-founders who was back in san francisco and saying we did it like this is it And we said, okay, let's go for it. Let's open up the marketplace. Let's see what happens. And then we opened it up and it was just up and to the right. Like the growth was just crazy. It was like 10% growth day over day, wow. and it was really exciting. Yeah, it was an incredible feeling.
0: I want to just, for those of us who don't know, can you explain your business model? And I think one of the things I know you thought a lot about was that making sure you aligned incentives to your customer. Talk a little bit about how you settled on a business model, and for those who maybe don't know what it is, what it is.
1: The fundamental value prop, like I said, to retailers is try before you buy. You can buy now, pay later. You get 60 days to kind of trial the products. And at the end of 60 days, you can return it if it's not selling, or you can pay for it. And that solves two problems for the retailer. One, it gives them capital to actually try more inventory. Retailers are are often very capital constrained. And second, it takes the risk out of buying. So it it solves two really big problems for for retailers. Um, We don't charge the retailer anything for that. We charge a commission from the brand. And... We were very intentional in designing the marketplace with that feedback loop in mind that if the products don't sell, we don't make money. And if the products don't sell, we don't charge the brands anything and we don't charge the retailers anything. And so our our goal has always been to build a marketplace that not only has a bunch of selection, but has selection that's actually really great and is gonna sell for retailers. building that data-driven feedback loop, which traditionally has really only been available to really large retailers like Walmart, Nordstrom, they can try something in one store and then see how it does and then launch it everywhere. Small retailers don't really have that luxury. They try it, and if it doesn't sell, they're stuck. Whereas when they're buying from us, thousands of other retailers in a lot of cases already tried the products, and we know whether or not those products are gonna sell or not and the products that do the best are the ones that get serviced to the top of our ranking models. And so over time, you know, our return rates have actually come way down. And what that means is our products have gotten better and better and better, and retailers are finding more and more value. And, you know, that's something that that we really like about the fact that, you know, ultimately our job is to help our customers succeed. And we're only going to be successful
0: if we do that. I would love to just hear your thoughts on what you think the future of commerce is going to look like. And, you know, fast forward a decade, you clearly have some really unique ideas about just what the future will hold. What are some of your biggest predictions?
1: The lines that currently define commerce are going to continue to blur. And I think there's a couple of lines that are, are worth calling out. I think one is the line that currently divides D to C from, Retail. Today, a lot of brands think of themselves as D2C brands or as brands that sell through retail. And one of the things we're seeing on Fair is a lot of brands that traditionally have thought of themselves as D2C are realizing: I'm spending a lot of money acquiring customers on Facebook, and you know, it's difficult to grow. And so those lines between a D2C brand and a brand that sells through retail are increasingly blurring. And a lot of you know traditionally retail brands are now launching their own D2C sites. And so I think the whole concept of a D2C brand is going to go away. I think you're just going to have a brand and they're going to sell through a bunch of different sales channels. I think the other line that's going to blur is the line between social and retail. Part of the job of a retailer, particularly an independent retailer, is to curate selection for their audience, for their, their customers, and to build community among their their customers. And I think you're increasingly seeing retailers looking more and more like content creators. They're building big online followings. They're using social media to connect with their customer base. And then on the flip side, you're seeing creators, content creators, influencers start to look more and more like retailers. They're realizing I have this audience. I have this cachet. I have this influence. The best way for me to monetize that is by selling products. D2C brands with a ton of success, they're missing out on an entire sales channel that they could take advantage of if they started selling wholesale. And that wholesale channel, particularly selling through local retail, actually is synergistic. It it positively impacts their D2C channel because now you've got your stores on all these shelves. You've got all these retailers telling consumers about how great your products are. That's going to boost your your retail sales. So I think that it's going to be a very positive thing for D2C brands. For brands that traditionally have only sold through retailers, similarly, they're going to be launching D2C and figuring that out and benefiting from that. It's going to help everybody grow. And then on the other side, if I'm a retailer, a lot of retailers still haven't totally figured this out yet. We saw a big acceleration during the pandemic, but they have these incredible followings. They have consumers that are regulars that love them and want to hear from them and want new ways to connect with them. And social media is an amazing way for them to do that. And I think more and more of these retailers are figuring out what is my place in the community, offline and online, and how do I connect those two things together to help grow my business? And then for creators, I think that's probably where we're earliest. I don't think the model has really been figured out yet. You talk to creators and it's a huge pain for them to figure out how to monetize their audiences, and there's these crazy contracts, and the brands don't really know the ROI that they're getting from it. And so, I think there's a ton of opportunity there for brands and creators to work together to kind of figure out what the model should look like, and for creators to make a lot more money, for brands to benefit from that.
0: I want to go back and you know, FAIR has grown tremendously. I mean, with over a billion in annual volume, and again, I'm sure that number is even outdated. What is the next chapter of FAIR? And give us a sense of what excites you most as you look forward the next year or two.
1: There's two things I'm really excited about. One is taking the marketplace that's working incredibly well in the U.S. today and launching it in New markets, new geographies. Europe is a major focus for us right now and is growing incredibly quickly. Japan and Korea, I think, are huge opportunities. Latin America is, is a huge opportunity. We've already seen in Europe that the same problems exist that existed in the US, and the growth there has been phenomenal. I think there's, there's huge opportunities for us to expand geographically. I think there's huge opportunities for us to expand into new categories. And we started with kind of gift and home, basically the retailers that Blunt Umbrellas hold into, And that has then led us into apparel, where apparel is now 30% of our our total marketplace. Food is a huge opportunity, toys, pets. There's all these categories that that we think are really big opportunities. We think there's opportunities to serve different segments of retailers and brands, moving up market, going after retailers with multiple locations, going after the long, long tail of brands that traditionally haven't done wholesale before, we think is a, a huge opportunity. You know, we think there's just opportunities to take this marketplace and expand it everywhere. We also think there's a big, big opportunity to take the marketplace and build tools around the marketplace and really become a one-stop shop for wholesale. Ultimately, that's the vision is every brand, every retailer does all of their wholesale on fair. And there's a bunch of amazing things that get unlocked by that, that become possible when you are the operating system where all of the wholesale is happening, there's things that you can do to help retailers make better buying decisions. Where if you see everything that's being sold everywhere, you can perfectly match retailers with the perfect brand. If you're a brand, if all of the retailers are already unfair, you know, we can help you connect with the exact right retailers that are a perfect fit for you. We can help you manage your backend system so that rather than having to you know, work with a bunch of different sales reps, go to all these trade shows, manage a bunch of different accounts. It all just happens seamlessly. It saves you a ton of time, which allows you to focus on the thing you're best at, which is you're making new, amazing things. We can help you identify what are the big pockets of opportunity where, you know, this trend is huge. All these retailers want this. You should make this.
0: My last big question I'd love for you to sort of give us your input on is this sort of shop local movement, what do you think that looks like in five to 10 years? Have, is literally everything just move online and very few players can exist in the real world? Or just how do you process that?
1: Yeah, it's a question we get a lot. And I think one thing that is, has been a really interesting learning for me over the last decade, these retailers don't really compete with the online e-commerce players. These retailers, they basically spent the last 50 years figuring out how to compete with Walmart and Best Buy and Target and all of the category killer big box stores that entered the retail industry and took it by storm and created a ton of challenges for these small retailers by having incredibly low prices, incredibly large assortments, more convenience. The retailers that survived that original wave of the big box kind of takeover were ones that figured out how to compete on experience on curation, on creating a sense of community among their customer base. And I think the future for local retail is really just an extension of that. We've actually seen, especially through the pandemic, an acceleration in our retailers adopting online tools and selling online. And one of the things they found is they'll write handwritten notes along with the delivery, and that really means a lot to the consumer. And so I think just finding new ways to connect with their customers and to connect with their community I think the other thing that you're going to see, and and I I think FAIR is going to play a big part in that, is a leveling of the playing field between the big box retailers and the online retailers and the independent retailers. And the way that I think that happens is FAIR connects all of these retailers together and gives them access to the data, the scale and the technology that traditionally has only been available to the largest players, These retailers have figured out how to survive in a world where they don't have the lowest prices and the largest assortments. I think with FAIR, they can thrive.
0: And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close a round. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suites helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Um, Max, I want to transition to a little bit about you. Can you tell us a little bit about growing up in Oklahoma and was there something that your parents did or your family did that you think really helped you stand out?
1: I actually think that my parents did a really good job of balancing having high standards and wanting me to do my best at everything that I did without putting a ton of pressure on me to fit into any specific mold. I had a ton of ambition and drive from a very early age, and I think they nurtured that without making it feel like failure is problematic. They were always really, really good about creating an environment where it was okay to take risks. It was good to take risks. I think the other thing that they did is they really emphasized learning and just put a huge, huge emphasis on the importance of learning I think nurtured like a lifelong love of learning that I think is so important in the entrepreneurial journey.
0: I love that, Max. I want to transition because you played uh, soccer at Yale. Talk a little bit about how your athletic career made you a better founder. How would you put that into words?
1: Playing a sport in college, especially at a really intense academic school, is so hard. It's like 30 to 40 hours of work a week. And it's a really professional environment you kind of enter the working world and the expectations of the working world four years earlier than everybody else in some ways. And I think it really taught me a level of self-discipline that I certainly didn't have prior to college and that I think is really important in running a company.
0: You launched not one, but two businesses in college, uh, tutoring business, student paying business. Talk a little bit about when did you know you were an entrepreneur? Like, when did the light bulb go off?
1: I had these two experiences where I launched this, like, it was, that, it was called Freshman Survival Seminar. It was basically for kids coming from public schools in Oklahoma, going to intense academic environments for the first time, helping them with that transition, like what I had gone through. And then I started a house painting business. And both experiences were so much more fun than anything else I had going on in my life at that point, that it really felt like I'd found my calling. I do think that there's, there are people out there, and it sounds like you're one of them, Alexa, that just like you can't do anything else. Entrepreneurship just has this crazy pull. And even after I, I left college and I was working in a consulting firm, I kept that pull just was so strong. And I never was able to find the kind of fulfillment and the kind of joy and the kind of autonomy and the kind of dynamism that I had running a house painting business in college until I started FAIR.
0: You've said before that being a founder will challenge you in ways you never knew you could possibly be challenged. Describe to people, give us a sense of like, what were some of the things that you were like, I just didn't know I could feel this level of stress. Like, talk to us.
1: So it's definitely the emotional part of it that I don't think you can possibly prepare yourself for. It gets easier. I will say for the people that are like really early in the journey, the first year or two is definitely the hardest, but it's still the pressure of it and the weight of it continues to feel pretty oppressive. And I think in some ways, the reason it gets easier is because you learn better to manage it. It's just the crushing weight of the responsibility of the expectations of the possibility that it might not work out, of the fact that these decisions feel so consequential. And I always tell people that are thinking about starting a company, don't do it unless you have to. And I do think there's a lot of people out there that have to, I'm definitely one of them. But it is, it's really, it's really—it's—it's incredibly challenging at times. And it's emotionally exhausting. And I've done a ton of work to try to better manage the emotional difficulties and the stress. Uh, and it's learning to, Keep going, even as that thought is is echoing in your head.
0: And to to you, learning to keep going, what motivates you in those moments? What do you do to kind of snap yourself back into it?
1: Having a mission that you really care deeply about, I think that's so important. And I think the folks that I've seen that have really burnt out on the job tend to be people who I think don't have that like deep connection to you know deep sense of purpose in what they're doing that can keep you warm at night and can keep you going and and can can make it a lot easier to find meaning in the struggle trying to design the job in a way that you're able to focus on things that give you energy one of the nice things about the ceo job is there's different flavors of it you know you can hire somebody to do a, a thing that you don't like as much and you know you can focus your energy in areas that that really give you, that you're passionate about. And so I think having some flexibility in what the job is and not getting caught up in, I'm the CEO, therefore I need to do X, Y, and Z. And recognizing that your energy and your passion and your ability to do this for 20 years is maybe the single most important thing in determining the ultimate trajectory of the company. And so giving yourself a little bit of flexibility in the way that you design the job. And then the third thing is, and this is a newer one to me. It's, it's being willing to give yourself a break and to take breaks. You reach a certain point and it becomes more of a stamina game, more of a marathon than a sprint. And understanding that there's everybody has limits, knowing what those limits are and recognizing the signs that, oh, I'm burning out. I need to take a break. I need to take a vacation. I need to slow down a little bit. I need to do a little bit less and not trying to force yourself to break through that year after year after year, I think is also really important.
0: Is there a book or two that you recommend to everybody that like really left like a massive dent on you that you think everybody should know about if they're building a business?
1: The book that I think is, I would recommend to everyone is growth mindset. If you haven't read it, I think it's become kind of a a popular term, but I actually think reading the book is worthwhile because the concept is a lot more nuanced than just like take feedback, challenge yourself, it really resonated so deeply with me. And again, being an entrepreneur, you have to go through such an incredible amount of personal growth and change in order to be able to keep up with the growth of the company that you just can't do it if you don't have the mindset of, I can do this, I can learn. This is hard, but that's good because that means you know I'm being pushed and I'm learning and I'm gonna get through that that one was probably the most impactful in terms of how it really, and not just in my, with business, it's my personal life as well.
0: Okay, Max, last few questions. I'm going to just ask question first thing then comes to your mind. Answer. Uh, what gets you out of bed every day? The mission. What's your favorite interview question that you ask somebody if you really want to get to know who they are?
1: What are you most proud of?
0: Biggest pinch me moment that happened at fair to date. So the biggest pinch me moment where you walked home and said, I can't believe that happened.
1: It was early at YC. Joe Montana came to my apartment and I was pitching Joe Montana. <laughs> I was just like, what? You're what like, the That's heck?
0: That's <laughs> fabulous. Fast forward two years from today. How many days a week do people go into offices?
1: Two, but it's going to vary a ton. I think some people, a lot of people will be known.
0: Other than fair, what's one other area of innovation that you're interested in?
1: Artificial intelligence.
0: Uh, me too. I totally love it. Well, first of all, Max, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, check out FAIR, dot com, And you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Toble. Max, a true pleasure. You're so, so fun to learn from. A sincere thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Alexa.